This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this U.S. politics edition of the program, U.S. President Joe Biden announces his reelection bid. The deadline nears for raising the United States borrowing limit or debt ceiling. A Manhattan jury found former President Donald Trump guilty of sexually abusing and defaming advice columnist E. Jean Carroll, New York Republican Congressman George Santos, notorious for fabricating key aspects of his life story, was indicted on 13 federal counts, including wire fraud, money laundering, theft of public funds, and making materially false statements to the House of Representatives, to which he pleaded not guilty. Hello again. I'm Carol Castiel. In addition to these top stories, on Friday, May 12, the United States government ended Title 42, the emergency health order used during the COVID-19 pandemic at the U.S.-Mexico border to expel migrants back to Mexico or their home country. This according to VOA correspondent Alini Bajus. She writes, quote, the Biden administration introduced strict asylum measures that Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorca says will lead to the expulsion of the majority of migrants at the border, where some border analysts say about 150,000 people are waiting to enter the United States. Well, for more on all these stories and a preview of the 2024 presidential and congressional contests, we turn to our veteran political analysts, John Fortier is political scientist and resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and that's a conservative think tank here in Washington, and Jim Kessler. He is executive vice president for policy at Third Way, and that's a center-left policy group also based here in the Capitol. Both gentlemen, as always, join me via Microsoft Teams. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Carol. Be here. John Forty, let's begin with you and let's start with the debt ceiling negotiations. I mean, we are on the verge of a possible default unless the White House and Congress can reach agreement on raising the debt ceiling. Historically, both parties have raised it without conditions to pay bills we've already incurred, not future commitments. However, as you know, the Republican-led House of Representatives wants to extract some major concessions that would potentially undo many of President Biden's key legislative achievements in return for raising the debt ceiling, which we are fast approaching. So we know that negotiations are underway between the White House and Congress, Senate and House of Representatives. Where do things stand and what do you expect will eventually occur, John? Well, we are facing a debt limit deadline. It's not exactly clear what date that is. It could be as early as early June or or through some of the summer. So we are really getting into the end game where negotiations are starting to happen. They literally have begun. I think a big news story this week is actually that, that House Republicans and Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, have come up with a plan and they passed it through the House. And many people doubted that they would be able to do that, that they'd be able to control their small majority. Of course, Democrats are still mostly holding the position that they want to clean that ceiling. I think there's been a little bit of an opening from the president that there'll be some possibility of negotiations. I think there will be negotiations. But, you know, I do think that's a significant fact for, for the new speaker who really has been able to hold together this narrow majority and put a plan on the table. There is literally a plan that has passed through one House of Congress, which will raise the debt ceiling. Now, at the end of the day, I expect a deal will be different than what Republicans want. And that may lead to some very difficult moments for the Republican majority as well. 
But I think we've got a place where we're going to have negotiations at the end of the day. I think there will be a, a lesser package, one that probably has more things Democrats would be happy with. Right now, it's a set of Republican cuts that they want to see. The other point about the Republican position is, you know, we are in a place with high inflation. Yes, maybe coming down a touch, but high inflation and very high deficits and long-term debt. And the idea that we would simply raise the debt ceiling without thinking about this or having part of that conversation, I think that's something that Republicans have made and been successful in a way that people did not think they would be. Jim Kessler, as John Fortier says, the Republicans did pass a bill to raise the debt ceiling. It includes a lot of unfavorable cuts. That is, according to Democrats, that is somewhat of a success for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. On the other hand, nobody really believes that bill will go anywhere in the Senate. And of course, the White House, it's sort of like dead on arrival. Nonetheless, where do you think things stand right now? And how do you think they will play out? I expect that we will be able to pass a debt ceiling increase before we breach a debt default disaster. I think there'll be more drama along the way. I mean, if this was a play, I think the passage of the House bill meant we were through Act 2 and now we're beginning Act 3. One of the things that has made me optimistic this week is a list of the negotiators, the staff now who are negotiating, has just been released from all of the offices, the president, Schumer, McCarthy, McConnell, they're the kind of people you put in the room when you want to have a deal, not the kind of people you put in the room when you want to continue to fight. So we had a period of divergent proposals and divergent thinking and a lot of political, I wouldn't say gamesmanship, but maybe upsmanship. And now there's the point where we've got to circle around on the deal. I agree with John Fortier. The deal will mostly favor Democrats. It will have some modest spending cuts in there, some modest changes in some government programs, a few cats and dogs. But I think this is a negotiation that Democrats will feel that they have won. All right, gentlemen, to be continued, we'll be watching that. Let's move on to another very important, serious story, the end of Title 42, John Fortier. I'd like you to talk about the significance of this and what you expect will happen. You know, this is immigration reform is essential. But as Jim Kessler said at these microphones, there's so much politics involved in wholesale immigration reform, which most people on both sides of the aisle probably agree should be done. But what does this mean, the end of Title 42? And how do you think the Biden administration is handling this important juncture? Look, I think this is a real political difficult spot for the Biden administration. The polling shows broad swaths of the American people are really not happy with their performance on immigration. The parties are very divided. A simple point is both the Biden administration coming into office, which basically opened up the impression, I think, among many people that the border was going to be more generous and people would come. So numbers are up significantly. But this particular policy, which relates to COVID, is essentially it allows us to turn people away more directly because of contagion or a pandemic ending means means that there's going to be a lot more pressure on the border. People are waiting and are going to be able to come in. Now, the Biden administration has responded with some policies, some of which are pushing back on this and making it a little more difficult, although some of them also making it more generous. You know, I think they're in a difficult spot because most of the Democratic Party has become much more strongly pro-immigration. Most of the caucus in Congress, with the exception of a few border representatives, Democrats and Joe Manchin, are not really looking forward to pushing sort of harsher measures. So 
while it's true one could talk about a grand deal between the parties, which is very hard at this point because they're very far on things, there's an immediate issue here. And I don't think it's going to get better. And I think the administration is really struggling to find a solution to this and one that their party is not happy with. So again, I think this is politically a real tough spot for the president, and it's hard to see it getting better in the near future. A political tough spot for the president, Jim Kessler. How do you see the ending of Title 42, which is understandable. It was an emergency measure. Nonetheless, we have migrants waiting at the border. And on the other hand, there's a process for asylum. It's not going to be easy. How do you think the Biden administration is handling it right now? Well, it is a tough spot for them. And if you look at the pictures, it just looks very bad. It looks very bad for Biden politically. And he's a lot tougher on the border than most Democrats in Congress. If you look at the two parties in Congress, Democrats see these pictures of migrants and they see a humanitarian crisis. And Republicans in Congress see those pictures of migrants and they see invaders into the country. I mean, that's how polarized it's gotten. Now, I think most Americans see something very much in the middle a feeling of empathy towards the folks trying to come in, but also wanting a strong border, not wanting chaos, wanting order. A solution is actually not that difficult, but passing a solution through Congress really is. And for Republicans in Congress, having chaos at the border, it serves their interests politically a great deal. And I don't mean that as a criticism because politics is politics. But having disorder at the border, I mean, that's how Donald Trump got elected in 2016. It's probably his strongest issue, and it's one of the strongest issues for Republicans. So I think a solution is difficult because it's not advantageous politically for Republicans, and some Democrats have moved further left as well. It's certainly a politically fraught issue, and we'll have more on that in the coming weeks and months. You are listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. Our guests are John Fortier, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and Jim Kessler, from whom you just heard. He's executive vice president for policy at Third Way. We're discussing the top stories dominating the U.S. political landscape from the debt ceiling impasse to the 2024 elections. And this is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on most of your favorite podcast apps. You may also download the show from the webpage voaafrica.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter at Carol underscore Castiel or connect with us on Facebook at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Here's a shout out to a loyal listener and Facebook fan, Masid Atesh from Kunduz, Afghanistan. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Well, with that, we start our second half. John Fortier, let's take a look at George Santos' situation. This gentleman we've spoken about at these microphones in the past, he's fabricated out of whole cloth very key parts of his life story. Some of that now has caught up to him. You know, he's been indicted on 13 counts. What does this mean for not just him, but for the Republicans? What does it say about where we are politically? George Santos has been in trouble since shortly after he was elected and people started to realize how much of a fabulous story he'd been telling about his life. He also has some legal troubles and literally has been indicted. I think the big picture here is that George Santos is never going to be reelected. The Republicans aren't going to want to see him run again. They'll run against him and Democrats may win that seat back in the next election. But there's a bit of a push. And I think, of course, it has political overtones where Democrats will like him to be resigned 
resign or leave Congress or be kicked out on an earlier basis because they might pick up a seat. And that, I frankly think, is not going to happen, or at least not in the near future. The policy, broadly speaking, for members of Congress is, yes, if you're indicted, there's some consequences, you lose your committees. But kicking somebody out of Congress, forcing them to leave is an expulsion, which takes a supermajority. Both parties would have to agree. And we've seen members of Congress really stay in place under these circumstances until either the actual conviction or very close to it. So I don't foresee anything happening. I'm not knowing exactly how long this trial will take. But here we have a member of Congress who's essentially disgraced, can't win again, but probably isn't going to leave Congress, at least in terms of his being able to vote on final passage of things in the near future. And most of the battle about whether he should or not is political to see if one can gain one more seat earlier than they might. Well, Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said about George Santos, quote, I think in America you're innocent till proven guilty, close quote. He has a very narrow majority, Jim Kessler. He needs every vote, even that of a criminally indicted member of Congress. Nonetheless, we know, too, that many of his fellow New York Republicans have called on him to resign much earlier after the history of fabrications were revealed. Now he's been indicted. What say you? Well, this is now where Kevin McCarthy's in a tough spot because he needs George Santos's vote and George Santos should be expelled. Kevin McCarthy's quote is buying time. He's relying sort of on a technicality to keep him here. It's an embarrassment for the Republican Party that he's there, that he's going to be the deciding vote on things. I understand that if he leaves, a Democrat is likely to win that seat. So it makes it harder for Kevin McCarthy. But I also believe that there is a long-term problem that Republicans have that includes election denial and sympathizing with a lot of the January 6th rioters and other conspiracy theories. And there needs to be a point where one of the leaders of the Republican Party, particularly in the House, shows some principle. And principle generally means doing something that's not in your immediate interests. And I think Kevin McCarthy would do himself and his Republican caucus good by getting rid of George Santos now. Probably not going to be happening. Nonetheless, let's move to another interesting topic. I don't think there's one show, John Forty, that we can record or broadcast without mentioning Donald Trump, and and this is no exception. And so, as I said in my introduction, I think we were at these microphones last time Donald Trump was indicted in New York on criminal charges. And so now he was found guilty by a Manhattan jury in a civil suit of sexually assaulting and defaming writer E. Jean Carroll in a department store in the 1990s. She accused him of rape. That was not part of the finding, but nonetheless, he was found guilty of sexually assaulting her. What does this say? Does this have any impact on his viability as a Republican candidate for the nomination in 2024? Talk about the implications of this and, of course, the other pending legal issues facing him. Well, broadly speaking, there are a number of legal avenues, some of which we probably even forget about because there's so many potential and real cases that have been brought against Donald Trump. I will say the initial indictment that came from the Manhattan grand jury is one that stirred up, I think, the Republican Party for Donald Trump. Just a real fact of this election is that Donald Trump And I think it's somewhat natural in politics is going to get more loyalty from his following if he's seen as persecuted and gone after. And so I'm not sure that this verdict, which is going to be appealed as a civil suit, is going to really hold a lot of memory for many Republican voters, arguably just the opposite. I think just where we are today, as opposed to where we were a few months ago, 
Jim has always been strongly believing that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee, or almost guaranteeing it. I guess I'm a little less so, but he's in a stronger position than he was a couple months ago. The alternative is perhaps the governor, Ron DeSantis, can coalesce people around him and fight for some of that vote. And that still is a possibility. His polls are down a little bit, but he's still potentially a strong alternative. But Donald Trump is the more likely Republican nominee, clearly the front runner. There might be another alternative. And all of this legal work is not hurting the president in the short term. Again, this is a Republican primary, a fight among who will represent the Republican Party. And Republican voters aren't worried about these things as much as they think much of this is there to bring down Donald Trump and they should rally around him and against Democrats who they see as behind many of these stories. Well, Jim Kessler, all of this was on full display during a tense CNN town hall Wednesday when they hosted former President Donald Trump, who further dug in on his lies about the 2020 election. He downplayed the violence on January 6, 2021. And with regard to this verdict in a civil lawsuit, he repeatedly insulted a woman in response to a civil jury's finding this week that he was, in fact, liable in sexually assaulting E. Jean Carroll. The moderator, Caitlin Collins, had a lot of trouble struggling to fact check his myriad misstatements in real time. So again, it seems like the more he doubles down on lies and these types of allegations against him and actual findings of wrongdoing, it seems to simply, as John indicated, rile up and excite his backers. But this might work in a primary election, but not necessarily in a general. What would you say? I don't think this has helped him in a general election. I think he's almost unelectable in a general election if it is a head-to-head with Joe Biden. There's a very likely possibility that there's a third party in the race, in which case I think Donald Trump is an almost certain winner. I do believe Donald Trump will win the nomination, as I've said before in the show and as John 48 pointed out. But one of the reasons is is because of the behavior of the other candidates that are running against him. And the guilty verdict that happened up in New York, that matters in a Republican primary when your Republican opponents take advantage of it and make you pay for it. For example, if Donald Trump was not the guilty person, but someone he was running against was, he would say, America is not going to elect a convicted rapist in a general election. That person can't be our nominee. Well, I haven't heard anybody who's running against Donald Trump say anything close to that. And that is the type of attack that you have to make on him relentlessly in order to win. You're in a gunfight. You need to bring a flamethrower to beat this guy. And I don't see anyone who's willing to do that. So, yes, I think he'll be the nominee. Jim brought up a gunfight, and I failed to mention the horrific mass shootings that we've witnessed just since you both were at these microphones the last time. But we will discuss that on another program. Unfortunately, that's going to be another contentious issue, gun safety legislation in light of these horrific shootings that we've seen. But as we close, John Forty, I wanted to perhaps continue on prospects for 2024. You've mentioned many times Ron DeSantis. He actually hasn't announced that he is running, but it's very clear that he probably will. 
And then there's also the Senate map. So, John, I wanted to ask you, I've read that Senate GOP leader, that's Mitch McConnell, might be rather excited about the Senate map. Right now, the Senate is controlled by the Democrats narrowly, but some analysts say that Republicans may be in the driver's seat to take a Senate majority. 23 seats are held by Democrats compared to just 11 for Republicans. Talk about the Senate map in your view for 2024. What are the stakes involved and and what do you think the prospects might be? Well, first, you know, both chambers, the House and the Senate, are very close and are both potentially up for grabs. The presidential election were to swing strongly one way or the other. You could imagine them going towards that winner. But I think the map in the Senate is very favorable to Republicans. The simple point is not only the overall numbers, but the number of competitive seats and especially the number of a few seats that are in pretty strongly Republican states. Number one would be Joe Manchin in West Virginia, which is an enormously Republican state. And you have the news of the governor, Jim Justice, getting in the race. That makes that race even more difficult for Democrats. So I think that the map looks good. Sometimes when you get closer to the election, the overall atmosphere or some of the candidates and some of the underlying races don't pan out as well as they are. But hard to see Democrats being able to pick up any seats. And Republicans with many good prospects, especially a few very, very good prospects, and potentially a, a map that even expands you know, more to four, five, six type seats that might be attractive to Republicans. And so a reasonable chance for them to take the Senate if the atmosphere is neutral. What about the House of Representatives, John? Look, I think the House is so close that a little wind blowing in either direction could make the difference. So I don't think there's any structural advantage really for either party, particularly. And we're going to see some redistricting in some states. It's a little complicated to know exactly what the district's going to look like. But I guess I would say if we have a very close election and we have a very close House, Well, you could almost flip a coin and see if it goes one way or the other. But if the wind is blowing strongly in in one party's direction with the presidential election, well, that party's likely to move a few seats in their direction. But close race in the House, Senate with a better map for Republicans. Jim Kessler, a close race in the House, but of course, a better Senate map for Republicans. And, you know, structurally, the Democrats are unlikely to pick up any Senate seats. What is your view? I wouldn't be surprised if both houses flipped this time around. There are 11 races in the Senate in which the seat could flip. Nine of them are held by Democrats. Two of them are held by Republicans. Look, Democrats have very good candidates in all of those states, but some of these states are really tough. Montana is tough. West Virginia is tough. Arizona is going to be tough because it's possible it'll be a three-way race. The Democrat Kirsten Sinema is going to run as an independent. There's a Democrat who's going to run as well. I think if Sinema was running by herself, she would win that seat. But in a three-way, that could go Republican. The House, there are several seats where I think Republicans I wouldn't say got lucky, but they overperformed. They may not be able to overperform in a presidential year. So I think there's a slight edge for Democrats there. But nail biters on election, probably president, House and Senate. Talking about the top of the ticket, John Fortier, as I said, we now know that President Biden is running for reelection. We think, but we never know, you know, if former President Trump will be the Republican nominee, both are older gentlemen, particularly the age of Joe Biden has been mentioned as problematic, a potential liability. How do you see Joe Biden in terms of uh, his prospects? Can the Democrats overcome this question about his age? Joe Biden is strong within his party. He's going to have minor opposition which will which will not affect him being the nominee. But he's weak overall in the sense of his overall job approval, really not very good for a president. 
You know, on the other side, I think you certainly have Donald Trump as the more likely favorite and a second possibility of, of Ron DeSantis. Look, it's hard to prove this by numbers, but I think DeSantis would be a stronger general election candidate, but by a couple points, which might make the difference. And I think that has to do with the fact that Donald Trump, one, has some negatives, but two, also really inspires Democrats to get out to vote against him in a way that maybe a DeSantis wouldn't. You get the last word, Jim Kessler, as former President Clinton used to say, you know, it's the economy stupid. So the poll numbers look weak for Joe Biden right now. There's the question of age, although I've heard some people say, look, he could run rings around people half his age, but that might not convince a lot of younger voters. But he is the incumbent. How do you see this playing out? I think he's in pretty good shape. I know his numbers aren't good right now. I, it doesn't matter that much. I mean, at this point in his presidency, George H.W. Bush was at 76% approval, and he'd end up with 38% of the vote. And at this point in Ronald Reagan's presidency, he was trailing in a hypothetical head-to-head -head by six points. Like, there's a lot of time left. The Biden team is counting on a better economy, and he may get that. If it is Biden versus Trump head-to-head, -head, if anybody watched the CNN town hall meeting, like, that was a pretty good advertisement for Joe Biden. So if it is those two running, I just think Biden has a strong edge. That's all the time we have on this edition of the program. I'd like to thank my guest, John Fortier. He's resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and Jim Kessler, executive vice president for policy at Third Way. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America. America.